Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you in song. We thank you for your word that is alive and cuts deeply into us, but also builds us up and makes us more like you. I pray that today as we remember your crucifixion, as we celebrate your resurrection, here in the gospel of Mark, that we would remember that all of this was out of love. All of this was because you had a passion to redeem us for your glory and for our good. And so, Lord Jesus, today we worship you in all that you are. We thank you for your perfect, sinless life in which you gave up all the rights and privileges of heaven and walked this earth just like we do. We thank you that even though you didn't really long to suffer, you submitted to the will of the Father and you suffered on our behalf. We thank you that for every hit of the whip, every strike of the hammer, it was out of love for us that you endured. Open our eyes, open our hearts to your love not so that we can look at ourselves and say nice things about us, but so that we can be inspired to chase after you all the more. You alone are good, Lord Jesus. You alone heal us. You alone are worthy of worship. And so we we worship you this morning. Holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come see face to face one day. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for joining in. That was, that was good. I, I enjoyed um, actually hearing you guys sing uh, from up here. I don't normally, you know, I'm not normally up here like that, so that, that's fun stuff. A um, couple of quick announcements as we get going. Uh, VBS is only a week away. And so if you are planning on getting a child that you know registered for VBS, please do so. Next Sunday after services, we'll be having uh, a gathering, a, a get-together to decorate, and there'll be lunch provided. So please feel free to join. Even if you like didn't sign up to do anything, come and help us decorate and eat the food, right? Um, uh, <clears throat> and then a couple other quick things. Let's see, I can't remember. Oh, and then there's a picnic, Sunday, August the 1st, that everybody will be invited to. Uh, We'll have cookout food. We'll have a slip and slide. So I expect everybody to bring your bathing suits, everyone, modest, of course. And we're all going to go down the slip and slide. I'll be first, and then you can follow. Um, And then we will lament on the pain of it. And the kids will just keep going, though. Um, So it's going to be good stuff. We do need a couple of things. Number one, for the slip and slide, if you have any baby shampoo 
or would like to get some baby shampoo. I almost said baby lotion or baby oil, and neither of those are what we're looking for. That would just be weird. Um, but baby shampoo, it helps slip the slide and, and get us down. So if you um, have some extra at home or you want to go grab us a few bottles at, at Dollar General and, uh, or, or the dollar store and help us make the slip and slide as slick as it needs to be, we need some baby shampoo. And everybody who did volunteer and registered for a T-shirt, your T-shirts are in. They are downstairs. Uh, Missy can get those to you, and you will look absolutely amazing in your Destination Dig t-shirts. Uh, another big thing that's coming up, but not until late September now, is uh, we're going to be kicking off Sunday school for all age groups. So we have teachers, the people who volunteered in a lot of things, and if you signed up on our survey cards, we will be getting in contact with you to get you plugged in. A couple of you, we've got questions, which age group would you prefer? Uh, but we still definitely need help in nursery and preschool. Uh, so we've got some, some teachers in there. And just so you understand the vision for this is you would never be in the classroom alone with little kids. So they will not like kill you or, you know, uh, take and hide the body and things like, no, you will always have another adult with you as a witness to what's going on and uh, a teammate to lean upon. So the goal is to have two teachers in every classroom. So we actually have one in all of these classrooms, but we need more teachers. And if you're interested in substituting, like you can pick up a curriculum and read it and be somewhat engaging for any age group uh, or a specific age group, let me know so that we can uh, get you plugged in. So it will be team teaching, we'll have substitutes, so it's not like you would have to be here every Sunday, but your teammate would help pick up the slack, substitutes will help pick up the slack, and we're asking for a September through May commitment, uh, about a school year. Now, some have looked at that and go, that's, that's forever, that's not forever. It's only like eight months, you can do it. And like I said, they'll be able, you'll be able to take Sundays off with team teaching and substitutes. So if you're interested, please just uh, get a hold of me, contact me directly, or you can email uh, churchoffice at faithlakeside.com. There will be an email coming up later this week just to alert the positions that are available that we need help with. Um, we will have a teacher's meeting late August, and then we will kick off Sunday school. The plan now is September 26th. And you might wonder, why September 26th? And I'll tell you. Because our church has this really cool habit of not coming back to church from summer until late September to early October. That's when everybody starts attending a little more regularly. And the first Sunday in September is Labor Day weekend. Don't nobody want to come for that. And then, um, and then we've also got Back to Church Sunday, which will be September 19th, where you can invite friends and family who maybe have disconnected from church and get them to come and join us again. Much like last year, we're planning on having a great meal together afterwards. So that's September 19th. And then the 26th, we'll kick off Sunday Bible School uh, all together. Hopefully, we'd see everybody's face here and all the faces that aren't here, but watching out on uh, the internet or on vacation this week, we want to see everybody engaged in Sunday school. So we are going to almost finish the Gospel of Mark today. We're actually going to finish what we believe to be the definitive Gospel of Mark, and next week, we'll get into the last little section, and, and uh, it's actually, and we'll talk more about it next week, the last little bit of chapter 16 in the gospel of Mark isn't necessarily scripture. So we'll talk more about that next week, but you might go, but it's in my Bible, and I'll tell you why it's not necessarily scripture, but it's good reading for the most part. So, um, but that's next week. For now, we are going to be looking in Mark chapter 15, the very end, and remember last week we kind of ended with 
Jesus dying on the cross. His crucifixion is complete. He breathes his last after a loud cry. The curtain at the temple is torn from top to bottom, showing that Jesus has paid the price for sin, and all of mankind through faith in Christ can enter into the very presence of God. And then the centurion who stood there and participated in Jesus' execution makes the statement that truly this man was the Son of God. Kind of wrapping up on behalf of Mark, his whole point throughout the gospel that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that's been Mark's intention to help us understand over and over again that Jesus is the promised King, the Messiah who would come to save mankind from their sins Also, not just a man, but the Son of God incarnate. And then the the last little thought that Mark gives us regarding the crucifixion was this. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome, who was the mother of James and John the disciples. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And what we're going to see is in these next few verses, these next couple of scenes that the Gospel of Mark gives us, that these women actually are the ones who tie the story together. They're the ones that we see present for the rest of what happens. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them up to the Gospel of Mark or the Bible app. It should be laid out for this today. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verses 42 through 47. So if you will read along silently as I read out loud for us. So Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verses 42 through 47. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. So we we begin to see now that Jesus has passed, he's died on the cross, that there are things yet to happen. Now, you might wonder, why was it so important that Jesus be buried that same day, that same night? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, God had actually commanded that even someone who had been um, sentenced to death by hanging on a, on a tree, sim- sentenced to, to death, that they were It was necessary to have them buried before the sun went down in order to maintain the purity of the nation of Israel. So Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23 says this, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not 
defile the land, your land, the Lord your God is grant, giving you for an inheritance. Sorry. Uh, so, so there's this clear command in Scripture that the Jewish people, even if someone was executed and, and, and given over to the greatest shame possible in their execution, that they were still to be buried that same day before sunset. And that was the end of the Jewish day for, for, for their people. It wasn't like, you know, by 9 o'clock or midnight. It was by sunset the business had to be done. And so there's this clear command of Scripture that even executed criminals are to be buried by the end of the day. And if you were to flip over to John chapter 19, uh, you could see something else that's going on that makes it critical for someone to claim Jesus' body. So if we look in um, uh, John chapter 19, starting in verse 31, John, in his gospel, writes this, Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe." For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Then verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. So prior to Joseph asking for the body of Jesus, we see what goes down as the Jewish leaders had asked Pilate, can you please make sure these men are dead? And then we will get them down and get them buried before the Sabbath begins at sundown. Now the practice would likely have been to just throw them into an unmarked grave to take care of the bodies to make sure that defilement was was not something that would happen. And um, especially important for the Jewish people would be not to touch the dead bodies, not to, not to interact with them. And so there was just this, this desire to be rid of these three criminals. Now, Jesus has already passed away and given his, his it is finished statement. He has breathed his last on his own, but the other two criminals are still alive, and so they would break the legs of a crucifixion victim or execution, and um, they would no longer be able to push up and catch a breath. So even with broken legs, someone who was crucified, they would not die within moments. It would take time for them to asphyxiate upon the cross. So when, um, G- or excuse me, when Pilate gives the command for these criminals who have just been executed to be put to death by breaking their legs, this is not like an instantaneous thing. So the fact that Pilate was surprised that Jesus was dead is because even with what happened in the Gospel of John, it still would have taken time for these criminals or these men whose legs were broken to die from asphyxiation. But we know, we read it clearly, Jesus was already dead. 
He was pierced with a spear, and from that wound, both blood and water flowed. And the science nerds in here know there's some explanations for that regarding the sack around the heart and how it likely filled with water. And so there was blood and water that flowed out when the Roman soldier pierced Jesus' heart with his spear. So this is what's going on, and and why Pilate is surprised is because he's given the order for these men for the, the execution to be finished, but he hasn't heard a report back. And so evening is on its way. It doesn't mean that the sun has set, but it means the time is coming for the close of day, and Joseph doesn't want Jesus' body to be thrown into a common grave for a criminal, and so he wants to go and claim the body of Jesus. Now, normally, that ability to claim the body of someone who had been executed was reserved for their family members. But Jesus did not have any family members withstanding, and Joseph, who was a follower of Jesus, goes and asks for his body. And this is why it took courage for him to go. And actually, there were some other reasons, too, because Joseph... We read throughout the Gospels, he was potentially a devout Pharisee, and a lot of times when we hear the word Pharisee, you know, we think mustache twirling and we want to go boo, but there were actually some good Pharisees who earnestly wanted to glorify God by being obedient to his word, which is really what the Pharisees were about, was obedience to the law. But they went to an extreme, and many of them were hypocritical, but Joseph, it seems, was a devout Pharisee. Uh, Luke tells us that he was good and righteous. In other words, he was a man who was noted for his character. John tells us that he was a secret disciple of Jesus, though, that he secretly followed after Jesus. And we all know of another man who was a religious leader who met with Jesus in the middle of the night and asked him about new birth. Anybody remember his name? Nicodemus. And we see both Joseph and Nicodemus working together to see Jesus properly buried. What's sad about both Joseph and Nicodemus, who likely would have been there during Jesus' trial amongst the Jewish leadership, is that both of them had standing, had the ability to stand up and say something that, uh, uh, during Jesus' judgment by the Sanhedrin, but neither of them did anything. They both were silent and let Jesus get railroaded to execution. And so this is a big deal for Joseph to go and ask for the body of Jesus. First of all, he's not a family member, and so he doesn't really have much standing for the request, but he is a man of character, and he's a well-known man in the community. And he was likely fairly wealthy from where we read on. He had his own tomb, which was an uncommon thing. And, And he was a powerful Jewish leader, and so Pilate likely wanted to appease him for that reason as well. But this was a big deal for Joseph to go and ask for Jesus' body. Because as soon as he does this, what does everybody know about him? That Jesus was his rabbi, his master. He was following Jesus. And so he's put himself in a compromised position when he considers all of the things in his life. So Mark 15, verses 44 and 45, tells us that Pilate was surprised to hear that he, Jesus, had, uh, should have already died. Remember, it's only just, just a few moments before that the soldiers have broken the legs of the other two criminals, and so it would have taken time for these men to pass away from asphyxiation. So Pilate's surprised that Jesus is already dead, but Jesus was dead before that because he had already willingly given up his spirit. So Pilate summons the centurion and asks, is he really dead? 
And the centurion is a, an expert on death. Uh, so when the centurion says, Jesus is dead, you know, it's like the, the, the scientists, you know, in the Wizard of Oz, and she's not just merely dead, she's really and sincerely dead. I mean, it's that kind of thing, right? And, and, and so this is, this is what's going on. The centurion is reporting to Pilate, Jesus is dead. There's no question about it. And so Pilate grants the corpse to Joseph. Now what's interesting is the scripture is so beautiful and so cool and it has so many layers as I was reading and studying that many commentaries point out that when it says that he granted the corpse to Joseph, oftentimes when you requested the body of a, of a loved one after their execution, you had to bribe the local official who had authority over their body. But in this circumstance, Joseph didn't have to pay to have Jesus' body released to him. Pilate granted it. Now, why is that significant? It's just interesting as, as it all works out, as we see it happen, you know, that, that God had a plan. God was opening doors. God was making things happen to accomplish what he desired. Because it was this man, it was this man's tomb, it was these people that God wanted to, to, to be able to experience what's ahead. And so Pilate grants the corpse to Joseph. Now, that word corpse, got it in red there, because that's a big deal. He's dead. Now, we'll talk about why that's significant here in just a few moments, but it, it's also significant when we talk about his sacrifice for us. It wasn't just that Jesus had a really bad day. It wasn't just that he hurt a little bit. It was he died in the flesh, physically died completely, fully as the sacrifice for your sins and mine. So then it tells us this in verse 46. So Joseph, he goes and he buys a linen shroud. And the word in the Greek there is fine cloth. So he buys a, a, a large amount of fine cloth in order to wrap the body of Jesus before burial. And they take him down. Now this is a big deal because they, Jesus isn't like just, you know, up on a chair and they got to get him down. He was likely pretty high up on this cross. Remember earlier when they wanted to give him a drink of sour wine, they had to put a sponge on a pole to reach up to him. So he, he's way up there and, and it usually took a number of people to lower a crucified criminal. And so Joseph and a number of others, they get together and they take him down off of the cross. Now this is a big deal for Jewish people because understand that to touch a dead body makes you unclean and therefore unable to participate in worship. And what's the next day? Well, the next day is a Sabbath and it's a special Sabbath. We think that the next day, the Saturday that was just ahead, was not just any normal Sabbath Saturday, but it was the Passover Sabbath. And so Joseph is, is compromising his own spiritual standing for the Passover in order to care for the body of Christ. Now, they take him down and they wrap him in the linen shroud. And so the burial practice was to, to not put him in his you know, best suit with a nice little uh, flower and, and say, you know, 
He looks so natural. But instead, to, to wrap them up, to wrap the body up in just layers and layers of linen, and what they would do is, as they were wrapping, they would mix in dried spices uh, because there's no um, embalming, right? And, and in the heat of the Middle East and a, a, a normal day, things start to be unpleasant fairly quickly. And so there was a, a practice of enwrapping the body, putting it uh, spices throughout. And, and they would tie uh, a cloth around the head, not as decoration, but to close the mouth and make sure it stayed shut and then wrap them up. Um, so these are some of the things we, we understand and know about the burial practices. And then they laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And so it, it's just a a cave, essentially, with a low entrance, and you'd get into the cave, and then there would be niches carved out of the walls, like, you know, kind of a sleeping beauty kind of thing, but not quite so nice and not nearly as much lace and finery, but instead a, a stone bed, essentially, to lie the body on. Now, what would happen is that over time, the body would decompose in the normal burial practice, and they would go back into the tombs, and once the body was fully decomposed, they'd get the bones out, wash the bones in wine, and then put the bones in a box called an ossuary. And then the ossuaries were stacked in the corners, and then fresh bodies were brought into a tomb. And the tomb was used over and over again by generations of people. And so we're told that this tomb that Joseph had, it wasn't just any tomb, it was a new tomb. No one had ever been buried in this tomb before. So walking in, it would have been a, a low, low entrance into a cave and there would have been... Uh, areas to lie the bodies carved into the walls. And it wasn't like you could walk in there and there were already three bodies and, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll stack Jesus over here. And, you know, this was the only body in a brand new tomb and there was no question that Jesus was dead and buried and in this place. And, and the reason we know that is because they put him in the tomb and then they rolled a huge stone against the entrance uh, most of the stones we see are these, these humongous six to eight foot tall round stones that are carved. They're about a foot thick and they, they roll in a channel. And so they would have been uh, kept up by a, a block and then the block removed and they just kind of roll down into place and close the tomb off. They, they weigh anywhere from about three to 5,000 pounds. So this is not a one-man job to open up a tomb. Instead, it would have been a team of people who would open up that tomb in the future for reuse. Some interesting things to see here in the Gospel of Mark. In the verse previous, Joseph receives a corpse. In this verse, Mark talks about Jesus and uses the word him. See, Mark is already spoiling what's going to happen for us. He doesn't say they took down his body, they, they took the corpse and wrapped it, they took the corpse and buried it. He says him. He, it's personal. 
Jesus is alive in Mark's mind, and he should be alive in our mind as well. Even as we watch him experience this and know that physically he's dead, we look forward to what is going to happen. But what's interesting about this whole circumstance is that Jesus' death actually took someone like Joseph of Arimathea and inspired him to be courageous, inspired him to sacrifice his own well-being and his own future potentially. And Jesus' death inspired him to action. Now, we're going to see that it isn't because Joseph is looking and saying, I know he's coming back and he's going to take over and make everything right. In fact, Joseph and the women and all of the disciples think that Jesus' death is permanent. They think that this is the end. Now, verse 47 of chapter 15 tells us this, that Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. So these two women who were at the crucifixion and saw him die, now are at the tomb, have likely participated in the preparations for his burial, and now they are eyewitnesses to where he is. They know which tomb it is. They know if they walk in and turn to the immediate left, there will be the body of Jesus. It's a brand new tomb. There aren't other bodies to confuse it with. They know where he is, and they know that he is dead. Now, what we see and what we can understand is that Saturday, it was the Sabbath. First of all, we know that for a fact, but it was likely a day full of misery and hopelessness and broken dreams for those who were left behind. Because nowhere in any of the Gospels does it tell us that the disciples got together on the Sabbath and encouraged one another with what Jesus had taught them. Instead, we still see them scattered. We still see them distraught. And and what happens next is that we see that they expect him to still be dead Sunday morning. So chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed... Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, hmm, who will roll roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And they said to him, or excuse me, he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who, Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So we see that these these women, they are going back to the tomb, not expecting to find a resurrection, but expecting to find a corpse that they can anoint with more spices. Now what is both sad and, and maybe even a little discouraging as we read this is that Jesus didn't just say that I'm going to die, but he actually said, on the third day, I will rise again three different times. 
Three different times Jesus taught his disciples that he would be raised to life. In uh, chapter 8, verse 31, in chapter 9, verses 31 and 32, in chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. In all of these circumstances, Jesus said, I will be raised again. And all of his disciples completely forgot his words and expected him to be dead on the third day. They had no hope of him being raised again. They had no hope. And they were distraught. And so when the Sabbath was over, and this would have been Saturday, at sundown the Sabbath was over. So Mary and Mary and Salome, they were able to go buy spices that night so that they could go and anoint the body of Jesus once again. Now they likely would have um, mixed in some dry spices as they wrapped him, but the word anoint there implies that they went and bought oils and perfumes and so their intent was to go in and not unwrap Jesus and begin the process over again, but to anoint all of the cloth that he's wrapped in with oils and perfumes in order to honor him and to, to, to just set the stage for mourning and the loss that they've experienced. So they go very early on Sunday morning to the tomb, and it's funny that on the way to the tomb, not before, but on the way to the tomb, they go, oh wait, how are we going to move the rock? I mean, isn't that kind of an interesting thing that we see in Scripture, how it records for us things that are almost nonsensical. Like if, if Scripture was lying, it would say something like, and the three women grabbed some servants to move the rock so that they could anoint the body of Jesus. Instead, it says they're on the way, and then they all of a sudden look at each other and go, I can't move that rock, can you? Oh no, what are we, we going to do? Oh, we'll figure it out when we get there. <laughs> and um, they, they get there, and they see that it's already been rolled away. And scripture, Mark here tells us, it wasn't just any rock in the face of a tomb closing it up. It was a very large rock. And so there's this miracle already that they walk into. The stone has been rolled away. Hooray! Somebody knew we needed to anoint Jesus. Or maybe something else is going on. <clears throat> so as they see that it's stone, the stone is rolled away, they enter the tomb, and other Gospels tell us they had to duck to go in, so we know that the entrance was probably pretty low. Entering the tomb, they see a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they are scared. Now, who do you think this young man is? Any ideas? It's not Mark, just in case you're going to go with that one. Uh, he was the naked young man in the garden the night, uh, you know, just three days before. Uh, but this is likely an angel, right? I mean, we all see this. This is kind of how angels are described as young and beautiful and, and dressed all in white. And they are completely freaked out because they see, first of all, the tomb is open. Now there's a stranger in here who's kind of got a little bit of a glowiness to him. Not a shimmer, that would be a vampire, right, if he sparkled. But, um, but, but he's glowing, like all this white light. And, um, and, and so we, he, they're, they're scared, and he says to them, it's always funny in Scripture, the first, time, first thing an angel says to people who are freaked out is, don't be freaked out. They're still freaked out, right? Don't be scared. I'm still scared. What are you talking about? Don't be scared. Don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Now, once again, we see some, some very clear statements about who they were expecting to see. Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Now, why is this important to get this kind of detail? Well, because remember, the name Jesus 
It's a very common name in this day. Because it is Yeshua, it's Joshua. Lots of boys named Joshua. Like we've talked about, it's the Ken or the Steve or the Michael of the first century. Uh, you know, that's how it is in our church. Ken, Steve, or Michael, you, we're all the same. Uh, Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, very common names. And so this angel is saying, I know who you're looking for, Jesus. No, not that one, the one from Nazareth, the one who was crucified. You remember, right? You were there, you saw it. I know exactly who you're looking for. He has risen. Now, it's interesting. In the Greek, this is actually a passive verb. It, it, it literally means not he has risen, but he has been raised. In other words, it, it isn't that Jesus just kind of, you know, he rolled over and he wiped the sleep from his eyes like, oh, that was a good nap. I think I'll get up now. This was not an act of Jesus alone, but it was an act of someone else outside of Jesus, raising him up to life. Now, who do you think that might have been when we see in Scripture the Father, the Spirit, and the Son all working together in this beautiful, beautiful relationship and immense power to raise Jesus up to new life. He is not here. Look, right over there, remember, you've already seen this spot that's where they laid him, remember? Yeah, we remember. We see that he's been raised. Now, <clears throat> some questions you might have. We, we talk about three days, and, and some of you might be able to think about, okay, so Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That's not three days. Well, in accounting in first century Judaism, it would have counted for three days. Because here's why. We've got Friday up to sunset, so that is one part of a day. And every part of a day counts as a day in the way that you're expressing it. So Friday before sunset is one day. Saturday all the way until sunset, that's day two. And then Saturday sunset begins the third day until the resurrection. And the resurrection happened early in the morning, it seems. And so any part of a day, counting as a day, we have three clear parts of days, three days that Jesus was in the tomb, three days to his resurrection. And so that's one question you might have. What's interesting is there are also people who deny the resurrection and think maybe Jesus, he was just a good guy. Maybe he was, uh, you know, just a great teacher. He died uh, for politics. He died to show that we need to be nice to one another. And, and there are actually teachers and, and pastors and thinkers and, who think this way and still call themselves Christians. They deny both the deity of Jesus and the fact that he died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day. And all throughout history, we see people trying to explain away the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so there are a number of um, arguments that people give against the resurrection that I thought would be important for us to just understand this morning and say, nah, because they don't stand up to scrutiny. Number one, it's called the swoon theory. And you all know what it is to swoon, right? It's like, oh... I'm faint. And uh, this, is, this is the view that Jesus did not die on the cross. He just passed out. And then his disciples thought he was dead, buried him, and then in the cool tomb, he started to feel refreshed and then just got up and walked out. Now, there are a number of reasons why this makes no sense at all. 
Number one, Scripture tells us over and over again that Jesus was dead. I mean, dead, dead. The, the professional executioner declares him dead. He has been beaten within an inch of death, crucified, stuck in the side with a spear through his heart. Do you think he survives these things? It's ludicrous to think that Jesus just passed out from the pain. And Scripture gives us enough evidence to tell us that is certainly not the case. Just verse 45, in and of itself, that tells us about the report of the centurion to Pilate. This guy's dead. Yeah, you can release his body, no problem. We know that Jesus was dead. What's interesting is even historical records, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, uh, he was a little later than Jesus, but he recorded the history of that era, He said it was well known that Jesus had been crucified and died and that his believers or his followers believed that he had come back to life after a time period in a tomb. Now, there's another one. Well, I bet the ladies went to the wrong tomb. They they went to the wrong tomb. You know, there was that, that tomb that Joseph had, but then there was one on the other side of the hill. Now, this is kind of ludicrous. Because what we see is that they were very clearly aware of which tomb, and not just which tomb, but even which stone table Jesus would have been laid upon. So the question of the wrong tomb is once again ridiculous. There's, There's the theory that Jesus' body was secreted away by the disciples, that they were so intent on proving that he was resurrected that they rolled back the stone themselves and they snuck in and stole his body. Now, this goes against what we read about when we read about their frame of mind. They were all still in mourning. They were all still distraught over the death of Jesus, looking for him to still be dead when they go back to anoint the body. But Matthew chapter 27, verses 62 through 66, tells us that the Jewish leaders actually were so concerned about what Jesus had said about his own resurrection that they wanted to make sure that the disciples couldn't steal his body. So they put an official seal on the tomb and posted guards. Right. So, so Jesus just, the disciples just kind of snuck in and, you know, disabled the guards, you know, and you can hear the Mission Impossible music play in and... Dun, 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 right? and, and then they reseal. I mean, no, it, it's nonsense. It just doesn't fit up with the historical record. Some people say, well, maybe everybody that saw the risen Jesus was just hallucinating. Uh, anybody ever had a good hallucination? Uh, never mind. Let's, uh, we, won't, we won't go that. <laughs> I, I, I don't know that I've ever hallucinated, except for one of those, you know, those times that I thought I was special and something that I wasn't, but, um, but how many times have you ever had a hallucination in common with someone else, right? I mean, and, and maybe, maybe it was, it'd be possible for you to see the dragon and they'd see the dragon too, right? Uh, uh, because similar circumstances. But scripture tells us and history tells us over 500 people saw the risen Christ at one time. 500, is it possible for 500 people to have the exact same hallucination in exactly the same way all at the same time. 
Even in, in modern experiences like, you know, the Virgin Mary appearing in places and, 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 and things like that, it's, it's always small groups of people. Oftentimes it's children. And, and they see something there and then maybe other people come and say, I think I saw it, but you know how it is. I mean, when you're looking for something, you can see it. If you're looking for a yellow car, you will see yellow cars everywhere. And, and so... It, the, the thought that everyone hallucinated is just ridiculous, especially when you talk about some of Jesus' later appearances, up to 500 people. Now, others would say, well, the disciples were clearly just lying. And I got to tell you something. There is no value for the disciples to have lied. Out of the original 12 disciples, of course, Judas had taken his own life before this. So we're down to 11. Of those 11 only one of them that we're aware of died a natural death. All of the others were martyred for the sake of the gospel. All of the others died, many of them in some sort of excruciating fashion for the sake of the gospel. They were beheaded. They were crucified upside down. They were boiled in oil. They were stoned. Even John, who we think lived to the full end of his days and died a natural death. He had been beaten. He had been boiled in oil. And for those of you who aren't sure what that means, that's like deep frying, right? Um, not cool. And he had been exiled onto a prison island. So the thought that the disciples would have lied about Jesus' resurrection is ludicrous. Now, if they had all ended up millionaires in resort island cities, maybe right? I mean, I'd think about carrying that one out, you know. But when you're dying and being persecuted for a lie, wouldn't you just shut up and walk away? Wouldn't you just stop? But these men gave their lives because they believed it to be true. And history tells us, and Scripture tells us, Jesus came back to life he was raised again. And we have that hope. When we read Scripture, when we see what happens to our Savior, we know that He died for us, and then He leads the way for us in being resurrected. Scripture tells us He is the, the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. He is the first resurrected amongst all of those who belong to Him. And so when we see this Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, and know that he has been raised, we should just be kind of like, me too someday. <laughs> yes, this is better than Christmas. It's like Easter. Um, we too will be raised. We too will experience eternal life in renewed bodies. And so all of this struggle and all of this striving and all of this pain, it may not seem worth it, but it is when it is to God's glory. Because we know that our sins are forgiven, our relationship with God is made right, and we will be resurrected to a brand new life. And we know it's true because Jesus has already led the way. Jesus has already set the standard. Now, Mark tells us uh, as the, the ladies understand Jesus' resurrection, that the angel, he tells them, go and tell his disciples, 
And remember, disciples is not just the, the 11 or 12. That's everybody who was following him as, as rabbi. And Peter, Peter gets singled out here. Remember, Peter has been singled out throughout the Gospel of Mark a number of times because we think it's actually Peter's story that the Gospel of Mark is telling. And so when he says, go tell his disciples and Peter, the Gospel wants to remind us, this man, Peter, you, you remember the one who denied Christ three times before the rooster crowed twice? The one who was stubborn and thought he knew better than the Son of God? This very same Peter, Jesus wants to restore him. Jesus wants this headstrong, belligerent, sin-riddled guy to come and, and walk in relationship with him now that he's resurrected. So he says, he will be going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And that was in Mark chapter 14, verse 28. Remember, Jesus tells all of the disciples and especially wants Peter to know, here's what's going to happen. You're all going to fall away. I'm going to die but I'll be raised up and I'll see you in Galilee. Peter, of course, says, no, I won't let you die, then denies Jesus three times and lets him die. And here's the prophecy coming true. He's raised up and he's going to restore all of them. Now, here's what the ladies do right away. And they went out and they told everyone, and many lives were changed that day because of their testimony. <laughs> no, they went out fled from the tomb, they were trembling and astonished, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, you might go, wait a minute, that contradicts what other gospels say. Well, it doesn't say that they never said anything to anyone. It says right away, they were freaked out. They were overwhelmed. This story was too big. This news was too much. They didn't know what to do with themselves. Now, the other gospels tell us, Eventually, they make their way back to the disciples, and they do tell them. And then John and Peter run to the tomb, followed by the other disciples, and they see for themselves that Jesus is no longer in it. And this right here, this last verse, verse 8, they went out and fled from the tomb, and for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the last verse in the Gospel of Mark that we believe to be original. The rest of the verses that we're going to look at real quick next week are believed to be tacked on to the end because somebody didn't like the ending. It's like when a series ends and you're not satisfied and they make a movie at the, you know, afterwards to wrap everything up. What's left of the Gospel of Mark is somebody else later on said, I don't like that ending. We need to wrap up some loose ends. And they make a movie at the end. They add on some verses to wrap up all the, la the loose, uh, loose ends and, and add some details and make Mark feel like a happy ending instead of this ending. But the reason Mark's gospel ends right here is because this is the story that the Holy Spirit wanted this gospel to tell. This is it. That, that even in the midst of all of this good news, it's still possible to be completely freaked out and afraid and struggling. It doesn't make the news untrue. It doesn't make the gospel any less powerful. It just means you're going to have to take some time to process and make some choices about what this looks like in your life. And that's not uncommon. Mark was writing this gospel to the people in Rome, the Christians in Rome, as a means of encouraging them. And his last word here is supposed to be encouraging, saying, I know things are hard. I know you're scared. I know stuff's tough. 
but this stuff is true. This gospel is real. This Jesus, he has died. He's lived, died, and risen again. And it's time for you to hold on to that, even in the midst of being freaked out and afraid. Even in the midst of persecution and struggling, you have a hope, something worth holding on to. And so we see, just, just in these last little stories, these, this last little circumstances unfolding around the, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, that the crucifixion, much like it inspired Joseph of Arimathea to be different, he watched Jesus sacrifice himself. He watched Jesus die for the sake of his good news, and it inspired Joseph to put everything in his life at risk. It inspired him to have courage, finally, and to take action, and to stand up and and be counted as the follower of Jesus, and then to sacrifice. Joseph was willing to put his personal standing, his personal wealth, his personal tomb, all of it, give it all up for the sake of following after Jesus. The crucifixion should do much the same for us as we look at what Jesus was willing to suffer and give for us. The hope would be that we would be inspired to courage and action and sacrifice. That won't look the same for everybody, but right now there's the possibility that somebody here is thinking, God's calling me to missions, but I don't like it because there won't be a Starbucks. The crucifixion should call us to courage and action and sacrifice. Some of you are like, yeah, I don't want to stand up at work because I don't want to get taunted. Courage and action and sacrifice. Courage and action and sacrifice. It's what the cross When you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's what the cross should inspire in you. Look at what he did for you. Can you just be bold? Do some moving? Be willing to sacrifice even something small this week in order to to celebrate and honor what he's done for you. And then the resurrection. What is so cool about the resurrection is that Scripture later on in the writings of uh, the Apostle Paul tells us that the very same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at work in you and I. That should be just like booyah kind of moment. Just yes, this is amazing. The very same power that raised Jesus up from the dead is at work in me and equipping me and empowering me to have courage, to move into action, to be willing to sacrifice. Now, power, power at work. I have been able to never raise somebody from the dead, right? You can take a a whole chicken and and make it, you know, do the, hello, my baby, hello, my darling, hello, my ragtime girl. And um, those of you who never watched Looney Tunes, I'm sorry, you should go back and watch the one with the frog. Um... I can't remember what the one froggy evening or something. It's amazing. So I can do that kind of stuff, right? But I can't raise that chicken from the dead. I can't do any of it. But what's amazing, the very power that raised Jesus up from three days dead. It's the same power that's at work in you and I. And we're not just singing and dancing like a puppet. We can be genuinely alive by the power of God and equipped be courageous and action-oriented 
and be willing to sacrifice. So as we wrap up, more than anything here at the end of the Gospel of Mark, or what we would say is the traditional ending, it's so important for you to remember that Jesus is your Christ. He is the Son of God. And what He did for you should inspire you to live for Him. And He's not just asking you to do things without also filling you with the same power that raised Him up from the dead to give you the courage, the impetus, and the willingness to sacrifice that you need to follow after Him. Of course, there's always that, 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 that truth that if you've never followed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you maybe don't even grasp or understand what we're talking about this morning overall. And so I want to encourage you to talk to somebody here. Ask them what this means. If anybody here cannot tell you by now what these four pictures mean, then you can come to me and we'll go over it together. But if you've got a question, you've been here and seeing these pictures and hearing the words, but still don't understand what we mean, talk to somebody. Come talk to me. Grab another one of the elders. Grab a Sunday school teacher. Grab somebody who just looks smart because they're wearing glasses and ask, how do I know Jesus as my Lord and Savior? I'm not about playing songs over and over again and forcing people to come forward and trying to convince you that if you did something one day, you're saved. Instead, I want you to understand it's not praying a prayer. It's not walking an aisle. It's not even baptism or the Lord's sable that, that save you. It is entering into a relationship with God and turning over your whole life to Him through Jesus Christ. That is genuine salvation. And so if you've never done that, and this question of the cross and the resurrection, they just don't make sense to you, then ask questions today. Others of you, believers, I hope that you are inspired to courage and action and sacrifice this week. And I hope that you understand that the resurrection promises us both a resurrection someday and today, that the same power that's within Jesus, raising him up from the dead, is within you, equipping you to do the courageous actions that are sacrificial that will glorify God. Let's pray together as the worship team comes forward to close us out. Father God, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you sent your son Jesus to be both our sacrifice and our example. And we pray that today we would have a heart that pursues him fully, that understands he the way that he gave himself for us and then rose again. We pray that we would be inspired to action and courage and sacrifice, knowing that you've given us the power to do it all because of what he did for us. Thank you for your love. We worship you this morning, Jesus. In your name we pray. We've got one last song, so if you would, if you want to stand, do, if you want to sit, if you want to lay face down on the floor to worship, that's fine too, but let's um, just do our best to kind of let go and worship Christ.
May you be blessed this week seeing the face of your Savior, seeing his beauty, knowing that he died for you. He was brought back to life for you. And the same power that raised him up from the dead is at work in you that you might be brave, that you might be active for his sake, that you might be willing to sacrifice no matter how small the things for your relationship with him and his glory. May the Lord bless you as you see his face. We'll see you guys next Sunday. Love you. And don't forget opportunities for small groups this week. And tomorrow night we'll be looking at the book of Jude. Let's see, what's it? Wednesday is ladies. And then next Sunday will be Sunday school, of course. And then next week is VBS. So there'll be no, no uh, midweek studies. But everybody will be here to love and serve children. So love you guys. See you next week or throughout the week.